Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, Episode 65, the week ending August 11th, 2017, the Wichita Lineman Edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I, Mr. Monitors, return for a wide-ranging discussion on some of the week's top compliance and ethics-related stories, including the Mattis Memo on Ethics and why it is so significant for the compliance practitioner. More data security compliance uh, is on the EU horizon. We'll talk about an article in Risk and Compliance Journal of the Wall Street Journal by Mary uh, Lemos Stein uh, about this new uh, regulatory requirement on data and security. We pay tribute to Glenn Campbell, who died this week, one of the great musicians in the second half of the 20th century. We discuss Matt Kelly's exploration of the intersection of FCPA and non-GAAP financial reporting. Jay asked if FCPA defense counsel are becoming whiny, based on the article uh, we detailed. Uh, Everything Compliance, episode 16, is out. It's our first book review episode in it. We consider Jesse Eisinger's book, The Chicken Chip Club, uh, as a... Uh, premier or preview rather, Eisinger and key book source Paul Pelletier have agreed to come on the FCPA Compliance Report podcast to discuss the book later, early next month. Uh, this month's podcast series on one month to a more effective compliance program has premiered in August. This month, I review how to have a <clears throat> greater continuous improvement in compliance program. Affiliated Monitor is this month's sponsor. Uh, Jay uh, pays tribute to me, actually, for surpassing 2,000 blog posts uh, earlier um, this month. And then Jay discusses his weekend report. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 65 for the week ending August 11th, 2017, the Wichita Lineman Edition. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. Jay, welcome. Good morning, or actually, it's good afternoon, Tom. We, we're gotten a little bit of a later start today, so uh, I appreciate being uh, more awake and ready to dive into this week in FCPA. Well, Jay, we uh, have got uh, several items to talk about, it, so why don't we just uh, hop right into it. Uh, the first thing I wanted to bring up, Jay, was uh, at the end of last week, well, uh, Secretary of Defense uh, James Mattis released a memo on ethics, and Matt Kelly, uh, our colleague, wrote about it on Radical Compliance this past Monday. And I found it to be one of the most significant statements on uh, ethics that I've seen in quite some time. It was um, directed towards the military, obviously, as he's the Secretary of Defense. Nevertheless, uh, I thought it's excellent um tone, comment, language, and overall message for every compliance practitioner at a, a U.S. public company or a private company. So uh, I, I was just um, really impressed by the memo, his uh, requirement that um, each member of the Department of Defense had to play in the ethical midfield, his discussion around training and how the military would train itself uh, to prepare itself and its subordinates for ethical dilemmas and that it was the responsibility of senior um, officers 
uh, or really not just officers, non-coms as well, but uh, all employees or um, military personnel would have to train those uh, under them. So all the way down the chain, uh, it was just a uh, stunning memo. It was so uh, I thought it was so powerful. I wrote about it on Tuesday and um, or Wednesday of this week uh, as well. So uh, lots really to unpack. I've cited to uh, both Matt and I cited to the full memo if anyone wants to read it. And I urge every compliance practitioner to uh, to read it. So from your perspective, what did um, what did you see in it? Well, it's it's really about talking the talk and walking the walk. And I think what I really loved about it and you commented on this in your blog post was the way that he signs off and he signs off, quote, I am proud to work alongside you. And the, and the point that you make is, when was the last time that you saw a CEO or COO, for that matter, end a communication with those words? So not only does the general feel it's important to have this tone for the top, but he's actually puts himself in the same boots as those soldiers who he's fighting alongside with. So uh, I think it really does... Uh, uh, you know, underline his commitment to ethics. And the other point that you made was this is a very succinct and targeted communications comes in around 250 words. So it's not going to put anybody to sleep. If you read this, you should retain the information and you should know what needs to be done. And it's short. Uh, I'm glad you brought that point up because it is short and succinct. But within that short succinctness of 250 words, I found about four or five key points um, in the memo, and uh, really for every compliance practitioner, I would, uh, or if you're a CCO, uh, the next time you're in front of the board, I'd put this entire memo up in front of the board and just go through it and explain how it ties into your program and to a best practices compliance program. So uh, just a, a really powerful memo, certainly for me, from Secretary Mattis. As I said, both Matt and I have written about it. So uh, you can get a copy of it and uh, you can get our thoughts, uh, Matt, on obviously um, radical compliance and uh, myself on my side as well. So next we have more data security compliance on the EU horizon, Jay. Um, Mara Limos-Stein at uh, Corruption, uh, excuse me, Risk and Corruption at the Wall Street Journal wrote a piece this week uh, about um New, um, additional rather, data protections that are coming into place. It's called the Network and Information Systems Directive. This is in addition to what uh, Jonathan Armstrong has talked quite a bit about, which is the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which comes into effect uh, next May. And uh, the NIS Directive requires that all countries have a strategy in place to support the security of networks for their vital industries and calls for a cross-border group for in information sharing on the risks and breaches of cybersecurity. Uh, for our U.S. listeners, uh, I think it's going to be the same sort of uh, requirements as GDPR. If you're doing business in um, Europe and the EU and probably in the U.K., you are going to uh, need to have demonstrated uh, compliance with uh, this memorandum at network and information system security in addition to data privacy. So uh, the data bar is, uh, I think, going to go up in the EU by law. And if you're a multinational company, you're going to have to um, comply with that law. 
So from my perspective, this is just the best practice that a company needs to do. And with the fact that, um, you know, there are so many uh, potential for cyber attacks, you would want to do this on your own. But my question is, is with all these uh, regulations coming out of the EU, um, do we think that some of this is maybe Y2K meets conflict minerals and you're going to have a lot of people uh, spending time and jumping through regulatory hoops, but I'm not really sure if they're not doing it for themselves, why would they do it to do business in the EU? Well, um, I think um, as to Y2K, that ended uh, on a date certain. Uh, Conflicts Minerals, uh, uh, I think, has been overturned or revoked by the Trump administration. Uh, I don't see the EU uh, having the um, situational ethics of the current U.S. administration in terms of revoking uh, regulatory requirements that uh, were uh, uh, that came out of the Dodd-Frank Act. So um, my sense is that one, this will be the law in the EU going forward. And uh, I guess the, uh, the thing I would see, Jay, is that if a company is doing business uh, in EU countries, it's uh, one more uh, regulation they're going to have to um, comply with. But you correctly note that it's a good business practice. So, you know, perhaps the answer is a business solution to a legal problem. And the business solution is to uh, have a network security plan and program uh, in place uh, as a business practice, just as you would have a compliance program in place to do business under the um, FCPA here in the United States. I like that answer. I just, uh, I don't know, I just felt contrarian for a sec, so I thought I'd throw that out. Uh, next up, you're going to talk about... Um, just uh, another wonderful musician who we've lost this year. And uh, the reason why the uh, podcast today is uh, credited to the Wichita Lyman. So why don't you tell us about Glenn Campbell? Sure. Sure. So Glenn Campbell, uh, hopefully most people know uh, who Glenn Campbell now was, but he was one of the true great musicians of the second half of the 20th century. He was a guitar player extraordinaire. He was a session player in Los Angeles who broke out as a singer he uh, had a string of number one hits, Wichita Lineman, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Galveston, um, or just uh, some of the ones that come to mind. He um, perhaps achieved international fame as the Rhinestone Cowboy, which I have to say is not my personal favorite, uh, but uh, it uh, propelled him into a stratosphere. He later had um, very public struggles with uh, drugs and alcohol and uh, cleaned himself up. And at the uh, end of his life, <clears throat> had a very public struggle with dementia and Alzheimer's. And uh, um, there was a movie made about his final <clears throat> tour and album while he was really in the uh, throes of early onset dementia. And uh, it really publicized that uh, very, very horrible disease. Uh, I watched it. It was extraordinarily difficult to watch um, because you could see his deterioration but very public. And I think he did a great service uh, by putting that forward in the transparent manner that uh, he did. But really one of the great musicians could play anything from bluegrass. He would toured with the Beach Boys, my favorite story. He was a Beach Boy once. He um, started on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, for those who might remember that. He then had his own show on uh, 
CBS, the Glenn, <clears throat> Glenn Campbell Variety Show. He was in movies. He was in the original True Grit and sang uh, the theme song from the original True Grit. So a true American, uh, son of a sharecropper from D-Light, Arkansas. Uh, had a practice law with a fellow who's from D-Light once, so he knew Glenn. And um, <clears throat> just a, a great, uh, a, an American original. So um, in your blog post, you used that as a jumping off point to um, talk about an interview with, I guess, what is it, the CEO of Lyft? Were there any um, lessons you wanted to share from that? Well, now you're going to force me to pull that up. Sorry, I don't mean to make you work. It's a Friday. Amen. So the um, yeah, obviously Lyft is um, the major competitor to Uber. So it's going to be interesting to see what uh, how Lyft shakes out with all of the turmoil around Uber. And we've now had the CE, former CEO, Travis Kalanick, has been personally sued by one of the major shareholders in uh, Uber. So that's always a or never a good sign. But the CEO at uh, Lyft is a fellow named uh, John Zimmer. And John Zimmer really had, I thought, some interesting uh, lessons around uh, letting people uh, know your weaknesses and uh, hire better people than you around you. And that's um, not a message many business leaders or even C CCOs talk about a lot. So uh, several different points, but that was really one of the ones that uh, struck, stuck with me from uh, the interview I read of, of John Zimmer. But it was uh, really an excellent piece, and it's going to be interesting to see where Lyft takes itself with its very different values. I'm, the business model, I think, is similar to Uber, but the values of Lyft are very different. Uh, they treat their employees very differently, and they put a very different public face going forward. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see where that goes uh, as well. So uh, let's jump to an uh, article that you flagged for us, Jay. And the article is entitled, DOJ Must Beware of Unintended Consequences as Multilateral Settlements Rise. Uh, why don't you... Um, Give us your thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, thanks. Yeah. So um, this caught my eye. I picked this article up through uh, GIR, Global Investigations Review. And <clears throat> it was an article written by um, a couple partners at Jenner and Block, uh, David Bitcower, uh, the criminal division's former second-in-command, and Nicholas Barnaby. And they had uh, support from an associate named Marguerite Muller, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. And they argue that multilateral investigations could increase the DOJ's leverage in settlement negotiations and lead to unfair consequences for companies. And um, I guess I have to say boo-hoo, because if I'm understanding their argument, they're saying that it's bad to have multilateral investigations, it's worse to have multilateral settlements, and it's most egregious giving a company offset credits. So I guess I am feeling rather feisty today, but what am I missing here? If I always thought it was a good thing for global authorities to try to root out corruption 
and an idea that started here in the U.S. and due to a lot of cross-training between the DOJ and the Bureau and our counterparts across the world, we've now trained within the last generation people who are able to go out and investigate and look for corruption. So if we don't have to take the lead on it anymore, and if a company like Odebrecht is going to be paying the majority of the uh, fines to the locusts to Brazil where the corruption happened, I don't see a problem. So, um, you know, Tom, am I just not getting enough brand today or what is my issue? You know, maybe uh, you need to. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. You might need to go back and rebrand with a with a big bowl (laughs) of uh, brand flakes. But uh, no, I guess I looked at it from a little bit different perspective, Jay. But it started with something that you touched on, which is if you violate if you engage in bribery and corruption, you anywhere in the world, you have violated some country's laws. If you're a U.S. company subject to the FCPA, obviously you violated the FCPA. But every country in the world has a law which says you cannot bribe our government officials. Um, And so you've now violated uh, the laws, domestic laws of a local company, a country rather. And you may have violated the Brazilian Clean Company Act, the UK Bribery Act, SEPON 2 in France, or innumerable other anti-bribery, anti-corruption laws with an international focus. So one you're going to be liable as you should be in those jurisdictions. Um, The point that um, you could be subject to multiple fines and penalties. uh, Yeah, uh, absolutely. If you engage in uh, legal actions or engage in actions which violate multiple laws, you bet. But the answer um, is not really uh, for to whine about it. I think the answer was really laid out most starkly by Kara Brockmeyer last November at the ACI National FCPA Conference, where she talked about, she and Dan Kahn were on a panel, and they talked about this, and they talked about the one pie concept, and that what the U.S. government and U.S. regulators were doing was moving towards one pie of fines and penalties, and that that pie would be split up by negotiations by the countries, but the basis of the negotiation would be, as you suggested, the locus of the investigation and the locus of the criminal activity. So uh, it makes sense for the majority of Odebrecht to be paid in Brazil. It made sense for the majority of Rolls-Royce to be paid in the United Kingdom. And uh, there's frankly never going to be an international agreement um, between sovereign nations where they cede rights to uh, obtain full uh, legal remedies for violations. That doesn't mean that they won't give an offset or they won't uh, agree to the one pie concept, but that's uh, that's the way it works in, in practice. And you're not ever going to get um, countries to agree to that and to ask the Department of Justice or even claim that you need to put that, write that into some uh, statute or regulation or rulemaking authority that you have to give an offset. Uh, Congress would never approve of that. Uh, because they don't want to tie the hands of the Department of Justice for somebody that violates a U.S. law, it, it, even if that U.S. law is the FCPA. The answer is, as Kara and Dan noted, is to self-disclose, uh, turn over um, information and cooperate during the investigation, extensively remediate, and then negotiate your fine and penalty, and then have the parties agree, uh, to the extent possible, agree on one 
one pie or one fine and penalty and then let the regulators split that pie and penalty up. Is that perfect? Is it going to give the same certainty and same answer every time? The answer to that's no. But the every country has the right to enforce its own laws. And simply because you've paid a fine and penalty in uh, Brazil, the United Kingdom, Switzerland, you name the country, that does not mean that the United States Department of Justice can or even should give full credit to that fine or offset that amount. So um, I really found that part of uh, their argument very lacking uh, and non-persuasive. One other quickie, if you can address it, they also talk about the potential for venue shopping. Do you, did their argument sway you on that as well? Well, the argument on venue shopping presupposes that there is a locked up resource of information that would only go to that one venue. Once you self-disclose in one country, uh, that country most probably will share that information with someone else. Um, if uh, so, and that would be the United States, the United Kingdom, Brazil, whoever they had a relationship with. So I don't see as a practical matter how you would ever uh, forum shop or venue shop. Um, I think that probably the best thing would be to uh, uh, self-disclose you know, um, across the board, but certainly make the Department of Justice and SEC aware uh, as early as possible because they are going to be your largest advocates for the one pie concept. And you want the U.S. regulators uh, to understand that you have cooperated with all other jurisdictions and simply, uh, you know, running to Nigeria or running to Kazakhstan or running to you name the country because you think you're going to get a better deal there. Uh, that works in South Texas when you're filing lawsuits, but I don't think it works in international enforcement regimes uh, for corruption. Cool. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Um, so, unfortunately, um even though I went to a somewhat reputable business school, I, I got C's in accounting, so I'm going to have to throw this one over to you. Um, our good friend Matt Kelly uh, of Radical Compliance talks about when non-GAAP reporting meets FCPA. So, right, Matt wrote about um, Maxwell Technologies, who's had their own sort of FCPA journey going forward and that they had certain expenses that they listed in uh, non-GAAP revenue. And kind of Matt's point uh, was uh, in, in that, I, didn't you go to, wasn't it a trade school I think you went to? It was called Pin Trade or Trade Pin, something like that. Something, uh, something like that. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm on the diploma. It says the Wharton School of Business. But, oh, okay. You know, okay. Well, my mistake. It's not. It's not Michigan or... Texas or any of those big schools. Yeah. Okay. So, well, um, my uh, accounting is, is perhaps even uh, my accounting uh, uh, degrees are even less than yours. Nevertheless, uh, when you have a non-GAAP revenue, the problem for people like me is I've been taught all my life uh, about GAAP, which are the general accepted accounting principles. And when you start talking about some other system or non-GAAP, I I, as in Tom Fox, don't understand how you can compare it and how you would, um, how an investor would take a look at it. And we've had, Matt's written a series of posts about non-GAAP accounting. And the basic point I get is when you use non-GAAP accounting, you're talking in a different language. And should you be able to report your financials in a non-GAAP accounting method, 
and have non-GAAP economic income when uh, it's only accepted that GAAP be used for accounting. So um, it's not exactly a way to play tricks because you do have to reconcile between non-GAAP and GAAP at some point. Matt cited a couple of examples. Uh, one was Oxif, which did reconcile. Uh, Avon did, um, but you had to look into the uh, footnotes to find it rather than a line-by-line -line tabular presentation that Maxwell Technologies, uh, for instance, used. So it just makes things uh, more difficult to understand. Um, and that's really what I got out of it. So from the non-accounting part, did, did I get out of the article that Matt was also saying that to some point, uh, there are lingering costs involved with FCPA investigations, and some of those costs may even impact the balance sheet uh, after a settlement. So I think that there, it's, it's a good idea to track those informations, but you know they're usually buried in footnotes, I think. Right. So if you want to geek out on some non-GAAP reporting, uh, we've linked in the show notes over to Matt's uh, piece. Head on over there and check it out. All right. A company that you know well, Halliburton. What did Stephen Smart say about them? Well, uh, Stephen Smart really uh, continued the discussion about um, Halliburton and the recent FCPA enforcement action. And it really shows how that case has continued to resonate in the eyes of uh, compliance officers. The, um, so I can pull that up. Uh, Stephen really wrote about it from the perspective of Halliburton being a um, repeat FCPA offender and that um, the internal controls failures uh, led to um, the current enforcement action by the SEC in uh, late July. And uh, he emphasized the need to have compliance oversight into third parties that the company brings in, because in the Halliburton's case, the um, third party uh, which got the company into trouble was not brought in as a commercial agent with regular compliance oversight and due diligence. He came in as a vendor and uh, apparently the um, violating Halliburton's internal controls and not having an appropriate level of oversight. So showing how this case continued to resonate and this is going to stay in the public eye, I guess. I think what I took away from that was kind of interesting. Uh, there's a paragraph that says, while the friendship may have resulted in some indirect benefit to the government official from Halliburton's decision to hire this local partner, this is far from clear. The selection of the business partner seems to have been based on his previous employment with Halliburton, not his friendship with the government official. So uh, in, in the past, when you are doing uh, procurement checks, you're looking for are they a relative? Are they an uncle? Are they a spouse? So this part of the um, the story seems a little bit more tenuous. I mean, is friendship uh, a relationship that uh, we can normally uncover when you're going through the third party due diligence process? You know, it's pretty difficult. Um, there's going to be no written record on it. And um, you would certainly... Uh, Maybe you could get people to disclose that, but uh, 
at least when you're doing family relationship, you have some degree of consanguinity. Uh, you rarely have that sort of definitional uh, certainty when it comes to friendship. But I mean, if you and I were watching a Rockets game, would you acknowledge that you're a friend of mine? Well, I mean, if I have a Celtics Rockets, I hope I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, depends on who was winning. Okay. <laughs> Even but more situational I, I think, ethics. Yeah. But I, I think at the end, it, it does make uh, – my takeaway from it is the final paragraph that um, when you are do, doing due diligence, it's not only important to look at financial controls, but you need to look at controls – from a non-finance perspective, so especially procurement uh, controls. And, you know, if there's a workaround that you can end up hiring your buddy or your friend and it doesn't get vetted by the other, um, you know, controls within your company, then there's a big risk there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Still lessons to be uh, not only resonating, but lessons to be learned. Okay. So, um Sports keeps coming back. Uh, if any people are baseball geeks like you and I, uh, we know that with sabermetrics, there's a lot of uh, emphasis and focus on numbers. And one of the numbers that means a lot towards the uh, longevity of a player's career is the number of 3,000 hits. Um, it's a very exclusive club. And recently, Tom joined a very exclusive club by writing his 2000th blog. And uh, earlier this week, he published uh, how he got into blogging and what his some of his famous blogs were. So I was wondering if you might uh, give us a little insight into that, Tom. So yeah, uh, I think um, I'm behind Dick Casson. I think he was, I don't, he's never listed how many he's done, but I'm sure it's well over 2000 because uh, as we know from last week, he's been doing it 10 years. Um, it took me four years to get through my uh, first thousand and uh, about two and a half uh, to get through the second thousand. Um, it's because uh, I blog a lot. I blog at Compliance Week. I blog uh, now twice a day on my site. So, um, you know, the numbers have, have uh, increased. And the thing I would just share with people is two things. One is maybe three because um, I'm a good lawyer. So I talk in threes. One is that the people who encouraged me to do it, uh, Dick Casson was one, uh, Francine McKenna, uh, who now works at MarketWatch, uh, Dow Jones Publication, was uh, incredibly supportive. Uh, Scott Moritz was a friend I met earlier, or acquaintance I made early on who's become a good friend throughout this process, and all of them were very supportive. Uh, I have tried to be supportive for others uh, who have come into uh to the blogging world, uh, probably my my biggest um, um, men, uh, mentee uh, was Matt Ellis. I guess he still blogs, but uh, before he went back to Miller, uh, he really had an active blog site, and I really encouraged Matt to uh, to go uh, down the road of blogging and really focus on Latin America. But in uh, with blogging and the work in compliance, I think you probably uh, uh, evidence this as well as anybody, Jay, that um, the more you give away, the more you get back. So that's really one of the, the key lessons, uh, key insights I had. Uh, second, that uh, if you really want to learn something, write about it because you've got to research it. And then for me, it's it's really a love. I love writing. I love blogging. I love podcasting. I love being in compliance. So I don't want to say it's a labor of love because that 
implies it, it's work. And I hardly consider doing what I do work. So uh, it's just I love doing it and love um, uh, writing. And I'm looking forward to having the, joining the ex very exclusive 3,000 Hits Club. I'm not sure I'll ever uh, overtake uh, uh, Casson, but uh, uh, maybe one, he'll retire one day. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I just wanted to uh, echo your sentiments and and thank you for your mentoring. And uh, you're you're absolutely correct that the people who are passionate about compliance and ethics and anti-corruption it's a it's a wonderful community and it, it really is a um, a peoplehood, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, and there's been so many interesting relationships that I've uh, initially forged with people virtually, and then when you have the opportunity to meet with them in person and reconnect, it, it really is a pleasure. So do you have a, uh, oh, um, let's talk about the one month um, podcast series I'm doing this month, one month to a more, um, uh, it's not effective compliance program, it's one month to greater continuous improvement. And uh, it's sponsored by uh, Affiliated Monitor. So thank you for that sponsorship. It's been a lot of fun. I had the chance to uh, to visit with uh, uh, Vin and Eric from uh, Jay's company. And uh, some of their thoughts are going to be in uh, some of my podcast and post this, uh, this month. So thank you very much um, for uh, that sponsorship. Uh, do you have a weekend report in mind this weekend, Jay? Tom, not only do I have a weekend report in mind, but it's already been posted too, so you can find it on my LinkedIn account. And the title is, and you may ask yourself, well, well how did I get here? Um, if you recall uh, around the holidays when we had certain uh, uncertainty about how the uh, new administration was going to handle the FCPA, I, I got a little bit musical and quoted the clash and said, should I stay or should I go? So. Uh, if you're uh, so inclined, please take a look at my blog, and it talks about uh, similar themes that uh, Tom just addressed about the vibrant FCPA and ethics and compliance community, which we're all a part of. So we'll link to that uh, in the show notes as well, since uh, you published it before the weekend. Yeah, let's let's see if we can make that happen two weeks in a row. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, unfortunately, we're uh, near the end of our time, but I was wondering if you might take us home this week. Sure. For Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending some time with us this weekend and looking at the FCPA week that was for the week ending August 11th, 2017. Hello again, this is Tom Fox, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us, as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly FCPA podcast. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.